This podcast is part of the Podbelly Network. Please visit podbelly.com to see a complete listing of all of our other shows. It's about to be a fun ride. Follow along, watch as we slide. Paranormal just hit the lights. Goosebumps all through the night. Mixing just a little bit of twain. That girl sure can't do a thing. Together, hillbillies go insane. Laugh so hard it'll hurt your brain. Podcast you won't ever change. These two here, they got the recipe. Sat on back and listen in to some of our darkest mysteries, eh? Welcome to Hillbilly Horror Stories. And now here's your host. Jerry and Tracy Polly and their dog Ninja. Can you laugh at anything? We like to laugh at everything. Here at the Thunder Rooster Podcast, we dive into the paranormal and conspiracies all through the lens of comedy and curiosity. And we end it on a hard laugh with our three shots of funny. New episodes drop every Tuesday morning on thunderrooster.com or wherever you get your podcast. We highly suggest watching episodes on YouTube due to heavy visual content. Rooster's out. Hey guys, welcome to episode 241 of Hillbilly Horror Stories. I'm Jerry. And I'm Tracy. Tracy, we have all kinds of fun stuff to get to later, a bunch of show updates and stuff that we'll get to uh, Mm -hmm. after we get through the main portion of the show. We have a special guest tonight, author Drew Beeson. And it's been a long time since I've been this excited about an interview we did, but this guy is high energy and we talk about all kinds of stuff. Can't wait for him. First, we want to thank all of our military and civil servants all over the world, no matter which country you represent. Thanks to all of you for what you do. Absolutely. You guys, we want to um, thank you for keeping us safe, protecting us. I know it's so hard to be away from your families, but we love you and we pray for you guys every day. And Anything anybody else does, nurses, doctors, all that fun stuff, ambulance drivers, you guys try to make it a point when you see one just to thank them. And you would be really surprised how surprised they are that somebody did that. That's happened to me a couple of times this week. One guy, I said, thank you for your service. He goes, wait, what? Oh, my gosh, thank you. You're so welcome. I mean, he was so sincere, but almost at the same time, he was, like, surprised baffled, anybody. Yeah. It's yeah. A, it's a lost art that people just don't do it as right. much as they used to. Yeah, but um, we're keeping you guys in our prayers, and we love you guys very much. Also, we want to make sure that people realize that uh, times are tough right now for a lot of people, and if you're struggling, you can give us a call. You can send us a message. You can join the group, Hillbilly Horror Stories, on Facebook. And and make sure that if you do that, it is the group and not the fan page. Because somebody sent us a message on the fan page, which is fine. Mm-hmm. But we don't always see those as much. And, and nobody else is going to see it but us. Right. So make sure you go to the Hillbilly Horror Stories group. That's where you want to sign up to be able to get, you know, some emotional support and everything. Of course. And But, uh, like, I got a call at 530 in the morning the other day from somebody who just needed to talk. And mm-hmm. we talked for two hours. Yeah. I mean, it's just... You know, we're here if we need to be here. And we've got 5,000 other people in the group that want to be there. And we appreciate you guys so much for uh, reaching out and for the group to respond back to whoever needs to hear that. Um, Also, if you do not want to do that, if you want to be anonymous as well, you can call the 800 number at 273-8255. Or you can send a text at 741-741. We love you guys and we're always here for you. 
And also remember that uh, we have partnered up with Talkspace.com. Yes, of course. So if you want a little more professional uh, setup out there, Mm -hmm. go to Talkspace.com, put in Hillbilly, and you'll get uh, some discounts off of their services there, too. Oh, perfect. As usual, the show is brought to you by OU Cateco Hot Sauce, number one habanero-based hot sauce in the United States. Go get you some at the major grocery stores or go to OUCateco.com. Put in Hillbilly Horror and get 10% off of your order. Yeah. All right, Trace, are you ready to jump into this one? I'm ready, doll. This, well, I'm just going to get into it. I'm not going to explain it. Okay. That sounds <laughs> They'll good. be explaining to go into it. but So we've done some a few stories in the last three or four weeks that were a little lighter on the history side and really heavy on the paranormal. Mm-hmm. And this one is probably going to be a little more opposite. It's going to be more history, more history and some paranormal. And it's mainly because the paranormal part of this one is kind of hard to come by. It did. I had to look at a lot of different places to get what I do have. And I also think that what's cool about this story is I don't think you're going to see a whole lot of talk about this one on other paranormal shows. Okay. I think great. this is you know, it's got a it does have a history and there's gonna be people out there no doubt that have heard of it, especially if you live in Florida, but I don't think it's one that a lot of people are covering. All right, so tonight we're gonna to learn about the Desert Inn located in Yeehaw Junction, Florida. Now I wanna live there. It don't get any more sound any more hillbilly than that, does it? No. Yeehaw Junction. I love it. So I've got plenty of paranormal stories from here, but like I said, it was kind of hard to go by, and, and uh, hopefully that you uh, enjoy the entire story, history and all, because it does have a cool history to it. So we're going to jump right into this, because I found this place extremely fascinating. Mm-hmm. I was watching a news report a few days ago, and they were talking about how many people are moving to Florida in recent months, and uh, some of the reasons, obviously, was for the weather some for the fact that they don't have a state tax, and some just because they've got some family there. And that's going to be the case with Beverly Zychek. She came to Florida in 1986 to visit her parents. Her parents, George and Stephanie Zychek, they owned the Desert Inn at the time. So she eventually, after staying there for a little bit and and really liking the area, she decided to just move down there. And she decided the next year to take over and let her parents retire, and she took over the Desert Inn. Oh, well, that's really nice. Did she and, live there, or did she live in her own house? I no, she lived, in, she lived in her own house. Okay. I just that's thought maybe they she might have just set up in there or something. And Yeehaw Junction, um, it's about an hour and a half, about an hour or so south of Orlando, but it's like in the, you know, kind of in the middle central part of Florida. Mm-hmm. It's not, you know, close to the beaches or any of that stuff. Oh, I mean, you're, gotcha. you're only an hour and a half, two hours away from beaches, but I mean, uh-huh. it's not someplace where most people move to get the palm trees and stuff. I mean, in most cases, if you're looking around, you wouldn't even realize you were probably in Florida. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. It's a lot of cattle pasture and, and a lot of just regular trees. You know, it's not the, it's not the fancy resort style plants and stuff that you you know that you would expect to see in florida when that's the image that most people think of is Mm -hmm. the beaches and stuff like that so anyway so beverly takes over and she learned a lot of the history of the desert inn by getting to know the customers many of whom had been coming there since way before her parents even owned the place oh that's really nice beverly made it a point to greet everybody that walked through the doors and she encouraged them to sign a register and to have long conversations with her. And this is. She this knows what thing. to do. She That's did. exactly right. 
This is how she learned about the inn and the surrounding area. Now, the more she learned, the more fascinated she became. So let's discuss some things that she would have learned from her patrons. Most of the inn was built in the late 1880s. This part of Florida, like I said, is, is mostly farmland, and it's the heart of cattle country. It's pretty much the same today as it was in the 1800s, believe it or not. Very cool. Henry Flagler brought the East Coast Railroad through the area in the 1930s to pretty much make it an easier way to export lumber from a nearby sawmill. And he had some other freight and stuff that he wanted to get mm -hmm. through there, so it just worked out for him. Flagler built a small train depot and a trading post, which eventually would become the Desert Inn. Very cool. Now, he had, the, the some of the building was already there from the 1880s, mm -hmm. so this all He just, like, up, added on? Yeah, he kind of built it, and it all ended up becoming all part of the same thing. This was a great place for lumber workers, uh, the cattlemen that were in the area, traders, and locals to just kind of stop in, eat, drink, and dance. And you're probably thinking, dancing, that, like, you know... Just didn't seem like it'd be out of place, but they had a dance hall back behind the restaurant. Well, how fun. Now, in the late 1930s, uh, people could come by there and do a little more, we'll say. Uh-oh. Up on the second floor, because it became a, a bordello, a very busy bordello. So they had to do something, because the men and the women couldn't dance anymore. So, you know, what are you going to do? Are they tired? They just thought, hey, let's go find somewhere to rest our bones. Well... The reason they can't dance anymore is because there was a fight between two men and it started a fire that burnt down the dance hall that was in the back and it was never replaced. So instead they just opened up a bordello. Well, dang. So, well, one good thing leads to yeah, another, right? It's all exercise. Yeah. It's hey, however exercise. you need to do it. Eventually, a man named Dan Wilson, who at the time was a vagabond traveling by train from city to city, stopped here and he really liked it. Now, he was somehow, and I don't know how, I don't know how when you're like homeless or whatever, mm -hmm. and you don't have a job and you're just traveling by train everywhere. I don't know how you scrape up the money to actually buy the place, but that's what he did. Wow. He scraped up the well, money you know. and he bought the desert in. He then borrowed, <clears throat> quote unquote, some <laughs> lumber from the railroad and he added some rooms to the desert in. We take like one piece of lumber at a time. I, I they, guess. He's like, like oh, they'll never Cash notice. <laughs> Build, oh, yeah, when he's building build. his car. <laughs> <laughs> so he takes all this stuff, and this is how the Desert Inn, as we know it, was born. He added some rooms. Now it's a hotel and all this stuff. So it's, it's So nobody everything. questioned it? Like, nobody questioned, like, okay, you're... I don't, I don't guess. Wow. This place was literally in the middle of nowhere, and it was the only place for people to get refreshments. So, therefore, they got a lot of business from... Uh, the travelers that were coming through the area, the, like I said, the lumbermen, cattlemen, and uh, they even got some Seminole Native Americans mm -hmm. come through there because they were very uh, prevalent in the area at the time. So when the roads were paved, they started to get their share of tourists as well. And apparently from everything I saw, they were just happy to run across something that seemed like, you know, civilization. Oh, I'm Because sure, there yeah. was, like I said, literally nothing out there. So let's talk about the name Yeehaw Junction, because I'm sure you're probably curious how that name came to be. Some think it came from the Seminoles, because their word for wolves was Yeehaw. No way. And there was plenty of wolves in the area at the time. But most believe that it actually came from the sound of a donkey, <laughs> because during the time, 
this place here, there were several donkeys and burrows used for work in the region. Yeah. So there's more to the story, though. So the town had 240 people right then. Okay. It was originally called Jackass Pass. A Jackass Pass. Jackass Pass. Then the Florida Turnpike was being built, and they needed a name to be able to put on the exit for the map. Oh, so they couldn't do Jackass. Well, they didn't really want to. They didn't think it was appropriate. Yeah. And then also the the Greyhound bus station needed, or not the bus station itself, but the Greyhound needed a place to name the bus stop. Mm -hmm. So they didn't want to use Jackass Pass either. So therefore, they renamed it Yeehaw Junction. So it would make sense that Yeehaw Junction came from more of the boroughs than the Native American name because of the fact that it was called Jackass Pass. Well, that, that would make a lot with. more sense, so, right. But there were a lot of wolves, and Yeehaw was the name for... So that is it's kind, mean, of, kind of weird that. that both of them actually were, could have came into play. Yeah, there. definitely. I had, no, I had no idea that that's what they referred to them as. Yeah. Well, just the, just the obviously, the Seminole tribe. Then there could have been different things uh-huh. by different mm-hmm. tribes, a lot of the locals still call it Jackass Pass, and if you actually go by the place, there's a big mural right on the front that says, of uh, the Desert Inn that says Jackass Pass with a big picture of a jackass <laughs> behind. The inn is located at the intersection of Florida State Road 60 and U.S. 441, and it's only a few miles off of the exit, so you could go get oh, that definitely. You could go check that out easy. It had very cheap accommodations, food and drinks, so it was a very popular jumping off point for people traveling through that area. So they used to serve such delicacies as turtle burgers, mm, yeah, no, no. frog dinners. What kind of dinner? Frog. Yeah, well, frog legs. Use that. They ain't too bad. Well, I just said frog. It could just. It's probably the whole frog. They're, I mean, they served turtle burgers for God's sake. Yeah. They had biscuits and they had chili. All right. I'll be down with the biscuits. Yeah. That's probably yeah. it. Don't that just sound good? In fairness, the food had great reviews. So, I might not eat it, but apparently people around there loved well, it. Well, back in those days, I mean, that's probably what people, you know, were used to eating. They probably had to hunt their own. Well, but by the time Beverly's parents owned it, I mean, you're talking 60s, 70s. Yeah. So, well, we're not even going all the way back to the beginning true. at this point. I guess they probably thought it's been on the menu so long and people right. like it, so let's just keep it. Now, before Beverly's parents owned it, there was a couple named Fred and Julie Chevrolet. And they had a great reputation in the area. People just absolutely loved them. And from my understanding is Miss Chevrolet was a very big prankster. Oh, fun. In fact, she had fishing line stretched across the entire ceiling in all different directions and little rubber spiders hanging (laughs) like over each table. And she had the ability at the right time when she thought you know, the situation was perfect to drop the, the fishing line with the like right spider over the right, on, right over top of the table and stuff like that. <laughs> and, and she would do that over the, whether they were sitting at the bar, whether they were in a booth, and she had a, it, was, it would freak some people out. One woman got so startled that she ran out of the restaurant and she damaged the door on the way out where it had to be replaced. She booked it. Well, apparently so. <laughs> Beverly and her parents liked the idea so much that they kept the fishing line up and they continued the tradition. <laughs> Good for them. The Chevrolets also had a life-size mannequin of a Native American couple and a child placed in one of the back of booths. Oh, that's really nice. Beverly and her parents kept that too. Good for they them. The next part that we're going to get into is going to come into play a little bit later. 
Okay, so yeah, we not a lot to talk about now, but you'll see what I'm talking about when we get near the end of the story. So we've talked about all the kind of the fun stuff and the spiders and mm-hmm. the, the, all that stuff. Now we're going to get into some of the not so fun stuff. For example, the road that's in front of the inn has seen its definite share of accidents and deaths, mainly because of speeding motorists coming through the main road there. There's also been a few gunfight victims on the premises, and with most hotels, there have been some suicides. Hmm. One man killed himself in, in the early 1900s by a gun after his lover had jilted him. Oh. The second, though, was much later. It was in the uh, uh, 80s, 1980s. And Beverly actually discovered the more recent suicide. She had walked to a room upstairs and found that uh, the man had hung himself from the ceiling pipe the night before. And after this, they pretty much closed down the second story of this. And at that point, they pretty much used the second story for storage. And at one time, you know, you'll learn that they were going to try to create a little mini museum and stuff up there. So, But they closed it off to customers after that. So that brings us to the hauntings. And we'll tell you about the hauntings right after this quick break from our sponsor. The regulars at the restaurant believe that the deaths on site and the fatalities on the road in front of the place is responsible for most of the paranormal activity at the end. Beverly closed off the entire upstairs, like we said, but there's only one way up there, and that's through a door that is obviously on the ground level. So you get it's locked constantly, mm-hmm. and the only one that has the keys is Beverly and her employees. So to get to the upstairs, you have to go through that door. There's no other entrance. There were times when they would be in the restaurants, and they could hear the the locked doors opening and closing. The locked doors were opening and closing. Yes. So then you said though they kept supplies up there, right? Yeah, but she, but the doors was locked down at the bottom, so sure. nobody could have been up there. Okay. Sometimes they would hear whispers coming from the uh, unoccupied rooms. Footsteps could be heard walking around upstairs, even when the door to the bottom was completely locked. So mm-hmm. there's no ways out there. Objects in the room upstairs have been known to move from one side of the room to the others when no one had been up there for days and sometimes weeks. Wow. Maybe it's mice. <laughs> On one of those occasions, it was a large oak desk. So wouldn't something that could just be moved easily. And they Dang. said it would have taken probably two people to move it. Yeah, I'm way. sure. There was also a report of a man walking into the inn and then he just disappeared. Really? Full body I'm... apparition, baby. So. Some of the employees were so freaked out and scared of the second floor that they refused to go up there for any reason whatsoever. No, can't blame them. Beverly absolutely loved this place and she wanted to make sure that nothing ever happened to it. It never got bought or tore down or something mm-hmm. like that. She did everything she could to get it on the National Register of Historic Places. This turned out to be a lot harder to do than what she ever would have imagined. So the first step was she had to prove that it was at least 50 years old. Mm-hmm. You would think that would be easy. Well, yeah. And that there was no structural damage. She started researching as much as she could, and over a two-year period... She still didn't have everything she needed to do this. She contacted her state representative, a gentleman by the name of Bud Bronson. Now, he put her in touch with some people at Tallahassee 
who could help her, and in 1994, the Desert Inn in Yeehaw Junction was listed on the National Register of Historic Places. Well, good. I wonder why it's just so hard to get that done. Well, I mean, I guess because because there are consequences. When you've got a home on there, there's all kinds of things that happen. Like, I know most cases, if somebody goes to fix it up, they have to do it to specific specs to make it exactly like it was. They can't just change stuff, and they can't tear down oh, parts of it. or So, okay. there, so because there's going to be so many rules and stipulations mm-hmm, on mm-hmm. it, then I imagine they just got to make sure they got all their bases covered. Right. Oh, well, that makes sense. Here's a fun fact. The Desert Inn did not have full-service water or electricity until 1978. You're kidding. Nope. Well, I mean, what was the reason for that, I wonder? I don't know. I guess it just wasn't equipped and people just didn't put the money into it. So I wonder how big of a hassle that was. I don't know. Because there's not a lot around there to run yeah. it from. Right. Well, yeah. And you that's said probably it was... why it took so long to begin with. I mean, even if you look at this place today, there's like nothing close to it. So mm-hmm. that would cost a lot of extra money to... It would have cost a lot. It may not have been available. Mm-hmm. Until they started, you know, building more stuff out there. Beverly eventually retired, and the end would eventually wind up in the ownership of the Osceola County Historical Society, who was running it until it closed the Desert Inn in June of 2018. Aww. I wonder why it closed. Well, I imagine it just wouldn't make any money. Aww. But there's but more that's problems. That's a pretty long time. Uh-oh. What? <laughs> December 22nd of the following year, 2019, a semi-truck ran off the road and crashed into the side of the Desert Inn. The roof of the building collapsed on top of the trailer. And you, where do you see these pictures? Um, I mean, it literally just went straight in. Oh, my gosh. Well, at least that saved some money on demolition, I reckon. Well, but they couldn't. They oh, couldn't because it's a National Historic Oh, site. that's very true. Fortunately, a few weeks earlier, some valuable artifacts had been removed from that part of the Desert Inn. So just by Can you imagine? Of all things, you say that's the only thing out there, and they had to pick that place to run into. Yeah. He had a whole field he could run into, and he ran into that. He says, um, the driver said that for some reason it was really dark. Mm-hmm. And he couldn't see, and he didn't even realize he had ran off the road until he hit the building and went under the building. Well, that's a big surprise for you. So before the Desert Inn ended up with the uh, Osceola County Historical Society, it was purchased by a gentleman by the name of Kevin Roberts in 2014. He said he had actually been in the restaurant business earlier, about 30 years before, up in New York. He closed his last restaurant to move to Florida. And he said that he was kind of really wanting to get back in the restaurant business. He was taking the back roads home one day, and he, he sees the Desert Inn, and it had a for sale sign up. He made some calls, and before you know it, he bought it. Kevin said that he had heard that the place was haunted when he bought it, mm-hmm. but he didn't really care. He didn't pay that much, never mind. He said that he has seen some things that made him believe that it definitely was haunted. Oh, what did he see? Well... <laughs> He would, at the time, like he did a live interview, which is cool. It was a KET interview. Mm-hmm. And he was upstairs because they wanted to go upstairs and show some stuff. And he said he had only been upstairs once. And when he was up there, there was this picture hanging on the wall. Now you pick, think about the, think about a picture just hanging the correct way. Yeah. He said as he walked closer to it, it made itself crooked towards him. Like it just turned toward him. So now it's at an angle. And he said it really freaked him out. 
and he's refused to go back upstairs until that interview <laughs> when they asked him to go upstairs, and he said he was kind of freaked out the whole time he was up there. I bet. He said that there were several different things that he couldn't explain happened, but he did stop short of saying it was from a ghost. But So not only the eyes moved, the whole dang picture did. Yeah, apparently. Rooms five and six there are supposedly haunted. This literally, too, is like your... Typical, cheap, little motel, just a single little outside entrances. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? It's, oh, yeah. It's, it's a really cheap-looking setup. But it, rooms five and six are supposedly the two most haunted rooms. And the story for room six is that a man in, in the late 1970s or 80s, he fell asleep with a lit cigarette, he caught the mattress on fire, and he died there in the blaze. Oh, my gosh. In room number five, a lady checked in on a Friday. The hotel staff hadn't been able to get in the, to clean the room. And on that Monday, they did a welfare check and found out that she had killed herself. She had shot herself in the head. Oh. Which is very unusual. Women typically do not shoot themselves in the head. Yeah. Oh, how horrible. In the late 1990s, on the property, in one of the fields out there, the uh, they found the skeletal remains of what they believe was an old man because it had no teeth. And they've never been able to find out the identity of who that was. Larry Fulford said that he stayed at the inn back in 2016. He said that uh, he and another friend were staying in room 11. They only paid $40 for the night. And he said it was more like a a Bible camp room that hadn't been updated in 30 years. (laughs) That's what $40 will get you. Right. He and his girlfriend were uh, sitting down. They were playing cards. And... They heard a jingle near the door. They look they look over at the door and they see that the chain lock was swaying back and forth. Not like somebody was trying to enter, but like maybe you picked up the lock and started to lock it, but you missed the hole mm-hmm. and it just swung back and forth. He said that's what it looked like. Yikes. He said that they were the only ones staying at the at the hotel that night, other than the bartender who had actually had a room a few doors down from theirs. Then in two thousand and twelve the manager of the restaurant at the time said that she definitely believed that, that the ghosts were there. She believed in the ghost stories. She wasn't afraid of them. She just thought that they just added to the charm of the hotel. See, I would have a problem staying at a hotel if I was the only guest. But don't that kind of freak you out a little bit? It would freak me out more if it was an inside hotel. Like when we were at the Low Hotel in Point Pleasant, if you remember... They closed down at a certain time. Mm-hmm. And the same thing at the Talbot. Mm-hmm. And they just give you a key. You've got a key to be able to get back in the door if you need to. And so you can come and go as you want, but nobody can just walk in off the street. Uh-huh. And that would be a little different than a situation like this yeah. where everybody's just got an outside entrance and you just come and go. Because it really wouldn't make a difference if anybody's there or not. But the Limp Mansion, we've had uh, when we had, was it? I think it was David Flores was here. He said he stayed at the Limp Mansion, and he was the only guest. Yes, that's right. He, he did. was the only guest, so he could just wander around the whole place, but it was all inside. And yeah. you know, like I said, some of the places we've been, but yeah, I, I think it would be freaky to be at one of those type places more than just a regular motel that you can come and go as the only guest. Right, I agree. So, what do you think about the the suicides on the property the fatalities out front do you think that would cause a place to be haunted 
Well, I mean, I could see that, especially the suicides. And, I mean, as far as the wrecks and stuff, I mean, was it in a curve? I mean, why why would there be no, so many wrecks there? It's, it's what's odd about it, from what I saw, and there could be a curve somewhere around there, but it looks like it's pretty much a straightaway there. Mm-hmm. I think maybe it's just poor lighting and... Like I said, it's kind it's of, like in, the middle the country, of it's kind yeah. in the middle of nowhere. So nothing's really lit but up. It is, but that is a main highway. Now, after they, after the truck, this is kind of funny, but after the truck ran into it, they did say that if they, you know, the the money was there, they want that they had to evaluate the situation to see how they would move forward with refixing it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this was 2019, so we're looking at a little over a year ago. They put up a fence. They moved some big debris out. And obviously they moved the truck and then they put up a fence around the front of it, you know, like a construction type fence to yeah. keep people away, which really does no good because well, the whole side is still wide open. Yeah. But anyway, they put that up, but there's not been anything else done to it since. I saw some video from somebody that was out there a month ago. And I mean, it's exactly the same as it was. But why wouldn't they just, well, I mean, I mean, they might not, have the, a, they might not have the money to be able to fix well, it up. It's my guess. that's true, but that's just a whole waste of time. But if you look at the place now, I mean, you could see all the damage is still done and they've done nothing to even try to work on that. Some of that could have been done, I'm sure. Yeah. Well. And, there, and it, the thing's got a big enough reputation and enough people who thought highly of it where they could probably collect enough that's what, money. You know, that's what I was thinking. If so many people over all those years loved this place, you would think that they would jump in and say, hey, we got to rebuild or we need to do something here. Because every, I mean, there, that was it. There wasn't anything else. Mm-hmm. So, you know. And they were, they were trying to make a museum. Well, I think they did for a while. But like up in the upstairs, there was what they called the bordello room, mm-hmm. which they, they kept most of that the same. It was still the same as back when it was a bordello. Now, that would be cool And to see. so it like had some of the same furniture and all that stuff. But like when you walked into, they had one room that was, it was like a sitting room, but it was very small. I mean, it didn't seem much bigger than the, you know, a bedroom, a mm-hmm. regular bedroom. And they had all the furniture and stuff set in. And this is where people would, you know, get acquainted with their, uh, mm-hmm. their soon to be, you know. So I'm, interest. I'm sure a lot of that was uh, a mess, though. I mean, did when the truck ran into... No, I don't think that affected... I don't think that... I think the truck hit over on a different part that really didn't affect any of that. Oh, really? I think the rooms and stuff really wouldn't have affected. So, and then... But, but they had that one, and then they had a bedroom that had been completely restored. Uh, so it was two rooms side by side where mm-hmm. you would be able to see what it was like back when it was a bordello. And they were trying to make like a little mini museum out of it. Yeah. But well, I hope they can fix it and and do, you know, it's just a shame that something's been there that many years and it's just like hanging there, not getting anything done to it. So right, I mean, do something or get off the pot. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> all right, Tracy, we're gonna take a quick break from our sponsor and we'll come back and tell you all this exciting stuff going on with the shows, the new shows that got set up, uh, and you'll get to hear this exciting interview with Drew Beeson. Sounds great, babe. All right, Tracy, so I know you're getting ready to read uh, all that stuff before you do a little quick housekeeping. We now have, I think, five shows set up. We've got St. Augustine in September 18th. That that one is selling way quicker than we thought. There's only 60 tickets available. We've already sold 18 of them. Oh, no, that's so amazing. Thank you guys so much for doing that. And on top of that, Diane from History Goes Bump has got it worked out. I don't want to give all the details yet because it literally just happened last night. I want to make sure that I'm right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... She's got it set up from like 11 to 1 to be able to do, not a tour, 
but an investigation of the St. Augustine Lighthouse with just us. Oh, dang, how fun. Yes. And I think it's going to be like $45 for, mm-hmm. and that's going to, that's pretty awesome mm-hmm. to be able to investigate one of the most haunted places in the United States, all to ourselves for like 45 bucks. Wow. Cause I think it was 60 for us for, for the Sally house. So, I mean, this is even cheaper than that. Yeah. So anyways, I'll let you know the complete details when we know that all of the shows we talk about, hillbillyhorrorstories.com, go to the show feed and, and it'll be there the live show feed. And when we get all this set up, that'll be something that Diane's going to be handling the tour herself. And I'll make sure you get all that information there. But then we also, right after that, we set up October 12th, which is a Tuesday. Tracy and I are doing like a little small uh, private show at uh, a nice little restaurant. It's called Coletta's in Memphis, Tennessee. It's the oldest restaurant in Memphis. It's Italian food. And uh, there's only 25 tickets available for that. And I think we've already sold four or five. I think we sold five already. Awesome. It's not going to be the typical setup. We'll, you know, it's we'll do, still do the story and all that like we would at a show. And we'll have stuff for sale. But it's more or less just going to be a bunch of us just sitting around dinner eating and telling stories. Like at a campfire. Except <laughs> they would prefer we wouldn't have a campfire. Oh, well, I'm so, sure they wouldn't like that. Then, a couple of days later, on Friday, August 15th, we will be in Galveston. August 15th? Huh? You said I August. Oh, I meant October. Okay. October 15th, we will be in Galveston, uh, for which uh, Justin Rimmel will be with us. Awesome. And we're going to have fun there. Another one that has, I think, 75 tickets, we've already sold 11 or 12 of those. Even though these things are months away, people are jumping on them. Thank you all so much. Yes. That one's going to be full. Awesome. Then the very next night, this is the one we got to announce. We will be at Outlaws Barbecue, Grand Prairie, Texas, which is a suburb of Dallas. Not really a suburb. It's a city that's in that area, so it's mm-hmm. not really a suburb. I think it's about 20 minutes, 30 minutes south of Dallas. But we're still in that Dallas area. That has been set up for the 16th. We will have Leslie Fear from, of course, the Fear of the Week and Because I Want to Know podcast. And Tim Mullins from um, HHH Media is going to be there. And we're still trying to work on another one. So Good Lord. I think, and I think um, for Drew Beeson, the guest that we're getting ready to hear from a little bit, uh-huh. he may be at the Galveston show. He oh, lives yay. in the area. So if he can swing it, he's going to come by there. Perfect. So that would be cool, too. But anyway, that's what we got set up. And then we got Bobby Mackey's, the October 24th. And that one, Bobby Mackey is supposed to make an appearance. Yes. Well. We're excited about and that. And we've sold nine or ten of those tickets already. Yeah. You so, guys are amazing, like truly. Yes. We're so excited. And we cannot wait for these shows. All right, Tracy, what do you got right now with the iTunes and the... Uh... All righty. We had a lot of really great reviews this week. Thank you guys so much. We had Little Bear 16, Billy Barton, May 4367832, Getting Through It, Steve-O77, Mojo Lobster, Kay Cummins and Twi- Twin Girl Mama. You guys left us some really awesome reviews. Thank you so much. It makes my heart so happy that you guys take the time out of your busy days to do that for us. Yes, very and important. Our Patreons this week was Don Hutchins, Bad Annie, and Erica Glenn. Thank you guys so much for supporting the show. We appreciate y'all so much, and we just love you. And remember, if you go to Patreon and you support by a dollar a month, you get all of our episodes ad-free. So you can bypass every one of the commercials. Yeah, but you guys were awesome, and we appreciate you all so much. It means the world to us. 
All right, Tracy, before we get into Drew Beeson's interview, let me, let me explain this to you real quick, though, because I want to say this about Drew Beeson's interview. I brought him on to talk about the Yuba County Five. Now, those of you unfamiliar, it's called the American Dithlov Pass Incident. It was the five uh, mentally challenged gentlemen mm-hmm. that... Uh, just went missing in California in the 70s. I've always found it fascinating, almost in a show on it several times. And then when I found out that Drew had written a book on it, I brought him on. Now, I didn't know what I was going to get because mm-hmm. sometimes they don't want to give you all the details because they want you to buy the book. And, you know, those, those are very vague with some of the authors out there. Not only did he break this story down better than I've ever heard it with tons of enthusiasm, we talked about the Zodiac Killer we talked about D.B. Cooper and a couple a couple of others. So when I tell you, you're going to get a full-fledged, you're going to love this interview. Trust me, I can't see anybody that's going to listen to this interview and say, oh, I didn't like that interview. <laughs> you're going to love it. You're going to absolutely love it. So I'm just excited talking about it. And that was a week ago when we did this. Yeah, it's very exciting. But I want you to hear this. Before that, I want to make sure everybody realizes that uh, we have partnered up with Paranormal Kicks Cancer. Go to our website. It's right there on the front. Click on it. You can learn all about the charity. And if you uh, feel like that it's something you would like to contribute to, uh, all the information's right there. Yeah, doesn't go through great. us. It goes through there. It goes through them. But we're happy to be a part of it. Absolutely. All right. Let's listen to Drew Beeson. Hey guys, I've got uh, Drew Beeson. He is a a very talented author. And uh, you know, it's funny how how this happened. I, I originally approached. Uh, Mr. Beeson here about doing the show with Justin and myself in Galveston and he's in the area and then I find out all these books that he's written and everything and it's really turned into something where I, I, I really wanted to do an interview to talk about one particular subject that he's well versed on which is the Yuba County Five uh, but first and foremost thanks for coming on Drew. I'm glad to be here thanks for having me. You know it's as I look at, at your list of books, and like I said, we'll talk about the Yuba County, but you've got a book on the Zodiac Killer. You've got, obviously, the Yuba County Five. Uh, one that I'll say is kind of about the D.B. Cooper and, and who he was and who he might be. You've got some mm-hmm. paranormal books out there. Give me a quick rundown of, let's say, let's say let's deal with the first one here, uh, the Cloak and uh, the Brethren. Tell me a little bit about that one. That book is about it's it's a you know kind of based on the Illuminati and some experiences that I had with some Illuminati type characters we'll call them so it's uh it's fiction but it has a lot of factual stuff in it we'll call it that it's kind of blurs the line between uh, what's real and not real so it's kind of based on a experience I had working in corporate America and some of the strange types I would run into you know that were you know Illuminati types kind of secretive and different things they would get involved in. So that kind of inspired that book. And it was a you know first story of any length I ever wrote. So it was kind of the first thing out of the gate I ever did. Well, I mean, we definitely have a lot of listeners that are interested in the Illuminati. So that's definitely one to check out. Now you said a sleep in hell was a book that was based on some paranormal experiences that you've had. Correct. Yeah. It was about a bed that my cousin had. I used to live with my cousin during college and he had an old bed that belonged to my great grandfather. It was an old iron bed. And I truly believe that bed was a portal to the afterlife. I uh, fell asleep in that bed one day when he was gone for the summer and I was immediately transported into this, this other, this other realm. And it literally one time took me into what I would fully describe as hell. 
And I could feel it in my soul. It was this complete absence of hope and, and God, you know, which is all around us here. And um, it transported me to a place where, it, you know, God, God was cut off and I was sent there. I don't know if it was for a reason or not, but it was definitely a portal into the afterlife. And um, it was a crazy experience. And he had horrible nightmares with that bed. So it wasn't just the effect it had on me. He had these terrible, similar nightmares. And he's the kind of guy that's real laid back, doesn't talk about that kind of stuff much. And then when he brought it up to me after that experience happened to me, I knew immediately that the bed was the cause of it. And, uh, you know, so that's what that, that entire story is about. And long story short, the bed is long gone, but uh, the story will live on. Was that something that the bed, was that something that he had purchased used or was that something he bought new? No, actually it belonged to my great grandfather when he passed away and it was in storage up in East Texas. And uh, my family went and retrieved some of my great grandfather's uh, belongings. And one was this iron bed. And, uh, you know, he painted it this crazy green color. So he just wound up getting it, you know, after our families got it from uh, storage and he just uh, liked it and started using it. So that's where it came from. It was in the family, you know, and my great grandfather was never into anything occultish that I knew of or anything like that. <laughs> and as far as I know, he never talked about it. I think I was six when he passed away. My cousin was eight, you know, uh, about two years older than me. And he never you know, talked about her. I never heard any stories of him having any, any experience with that bed, but we sure did. All right. So let's move on to the next one. You know, a lot of people have a fascination with DB Cooper. Who is he? Who is he from? I know I'm in Kentucky. A lot of people think there's a Kentucky, uh, might, might be a Kentucky connection. It's just, there's so many, so much mystery involved with this guy. And the book you do here, obviously it brings up uh, Ted Braden which a lot of people think may have been D.B. Cooper. So is that what the book is primarily about, is trying to, to show whether Ted Braden is the one and only D.B. Cooper? That is exactly what the book is about. And uh, the Kentucky connection with Ted Braden would be uh, Fort Campbell. Yep. And uh, where he was uh, stationed when he first joined the military, he was a member of the 101st Airborne, the Screaming Eagles, and uh, wound up signing up to go fight in World War II. As a 16-year-old, he lied about his age. He got his aunt to help him, and he wound up fighting in the Battle of the Bulge. So as a young, pretty still a young boy, got some, some heavy combat experience. And uh, what the military turned Ted Braden into was a super soldier, a true super soldier. And what he excelled at was skydiving, of course. You see where we're going with this with T.B. Mm -hmm. Cooper. And uh, I would I would present that he's probably the best skydiver that ever lived. I mean, he won every competition he ever entered in. He was in a a military jumping team called the golden arrows and they would do uh, uh, parachuting competitions around Europe. And he won most of the ones he ever joined. And he was uh, starts and stripes magazine, the European one. And they had pictures of him doing all the different positions. He was just excelled at skydiving. He taught it for a while and he was pretty much in the military for most of his career on and off. And um, where he comes into to just being a good fit for DB Cooper. I actually read about Ted Braden on a DB Cooper uh, message board. And a guy named Bruce Smith was talking about him. And I know Bruce pretty well now. And Bruce is like the uh, grand poobah of all things D.B. Cooper. He wrote a book called D.B. Cooper and the FBI. But him and another gentleman on that message board that went by the name Snowman uh, were talking about Ted Braden. And they were, you know, and his possibility of maybe being D.B. Cooper. And I just said, I've got to know more about this guy because they were just <laughs> talking about literally this guy was described as having balls of steel. And uh, he wound up going to Vietnam. 
1965, and he was in the most elite special forces group that's called MACV-SOG, and that stands for Materials Assistance Command Vietnam Studies and Observations Group. That's a really benign-sounding name for the dudes that did the really nasty stuff. I mean, they were the black <laughs> ops. They were the black ops guys, so they didn't want people to know who they were. And when you joined to be a member of MACV-SOG, they would tell you, they would put you into a briefing, say, you never tell anybody what you learned here. You don't tell your girlfriend, you don't tell your wife. In fact, you know, you're on a, like a 20 year um, moratorium or something where you cannot ever mention to anyone for 20 years what, what the, you know or what, they, what they've taught you in this group. So very elite. And at the time he joined, it was a 100% casualty rate. I think it was, uh, they had the most casualties inflicted on that particular unit than any other unit, but they also had the far most kills of any other group in Vietnam. They were just that good. They did wiretaps. They did, uh, they would go into Laos a lot, which we weren't supposed to be there because of the Geneva Accords. So these guys were used to the really gritty stuff. And of course, jumping out of airplanes in the middle of the night into really hostile stuff. So who better to be trained than a guy like that uh, to be D.B. Cooper? Because the D.B. Cooper jump was pretty risky. You know, of course it was at night, the weather was bad. And uh, most importantly, you had to know that you could jump out of a 727 that had never been done before. No one had ever hijacked an airplane, demanded a ransom and used a, uh, and using a uh, briefcase bomb. That was brand new. No one had ever thought about that. And that's the thing about Ted Braden. The guy was literally, had a, he had a really high IQ. And we know that because when he was in the military, he had a GT score of 150. And I think that, you know, extrapolating that out to IQ puts his IQ in a really high range. And uh, he was this really smart guy that was just, he had zero fear of death. He, he would like to push the limits. That's why he loved being in Vietnam, because he could pull the ripcord literally right below a thousand feet, which, which is death for most people. But Ted Braden could do that. And what really got him on my radar was the most elite, well-known legends that fought in Vietnam and special forces, uh, pointed to Ted Braid when they first say, who do you think D.B. Cooper was? And they said, well, we think he's one of our own because of the way this thing was done, you know, at night, uh, the, the way the whole thing set up. He asked for the notes back when D.B. Cooper hijacked the 727 and on Thanksgiving, even 1971. And to them, they said the person that would have thought of it in the first place and that would have had the balls to pull it off and the skills to pull it off was Ted Braid. And they never offer a second person to be D.B. Cooper, it's always the first. And this is guys like Billy Waugh, who wrote a book called Hunt for the Jackal. He's a highly decorated uh, Vietnam Special Forces guy. Another guy named Major John Plaster also said he believed that uh, Ted Braden was D.B. Cooper. So when I read that, I was just locked into this guy. So I went on a mission to find out everything I could about him. And the more I found out, the more he fit the mold of D.B. Cooper. Yeah, it's definitely a fascinating <sighs> scenario there with the uh... Everything that 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 Braden knew and everything that coordinated to what DB Cooper did, it, it's very odd, but it does seem like those puzzle pieces fit together. Yeah, they really do, and, and you have to know that DB Cooper knew more about the seven twenty seven than the pilots did, because uh, <laughs> when DB Cooper hijacked that plane, it was on the and uh, he hijacked it in uh, Portland, going to Seattle, and when you know, of course, he hi you know gave the note and started hijacking it after it took off from Seattle on its way to Portland. Oh no, sorry, from Portland going to Seattle. And um, when he when they landed on the ground, and, you know, after they brought the ransom on board, he wanted the plane to take off with the aft stair because that that particular that particular Boeing seven twenty seven had a rare aft stair where you know people could depart it if they wanted to. And uh, 
Ted Braden or would have known or, or D.B. Cooper definitely knew that that plane could take off with that aft stair down. And the pilots didn't even know that. And D.B. Cooper actually got into an argument with the pilots over that, saying, no, you're going to take <laughs> off with that stair down. And they said, no, we're not. That can't be done. And D.B. Cooper finally relented and let them put the aft stair up. So, of course, after the plane took off again from uh, Seattle, they had to, uh, you know, drop the stair down for him to jump out of it. But uh, he knew more about that plane than the pilots. And the only people that would have known that are people that were in special forces in Vietnam because that was being done over there and uh, over places like Cambodia because you wouldn't be, you know, paying much attention to a, to a, a, a jumbo jet going, you know, aboard. You would never expect anyone would jump out of that at the time. It was something brand new to jump out of a jumbo jet. So uh, that's something that Braden would have known. Uh, if he didn't do it himself, he would have still known people back in Vietnam that had that special knowledge because it was pretty top secret to know that you could jump out of a 727 back then. And he definitely would have had that. And another thing that Braden had going for him is he's a dead ringer for that D.B. Cooper sketch. He really is. Uh, I got a photograph from his uh, nephew who was in Scotland at the time that I ran him down and took some work to find him. And he uh, sent a photograph of Braden to me that was taken in 1975. Now, this was about four years after the, the hijacking. And uh, he's just a dead ringer for D.B. Cooper. He's got really dark skin. Now, he was a Caucasian man. But he had really dark skin. And I don't know if that was from being in Vietnam for so long and being, you know, in the military. He was also uh, a mercenary fighter in the Congo after Vietnam. But uh, that's one description of every eyewitness that said they could that, that was on the plane that D.B. Cooper hijacked said if they could remember him again. And the people that answered yes to that question said he had dark skin or he was swarthy is the word they used back then in 1971. He was swarthy. And Ted, Ted Braden was definitely swarthy, had a swarthy complexion. <laughs> So he had all everything going for him. All right. So let's jump to, I'm going to guess, I'm just speculating here that this is probably your most popular book, but it's citing in on the Zodiac killer. There has always been extreme interest in the Zodiac killer. And, you know, you're obviously look at, looking at, uh, at it from your viewpoint on here and doing some research what are your thoughts when it comes to true crime in general? Where does the Zodiac killer rank in, in well, number number one yeah, <laughs> for me? Kind of... I mean, I'm a little biased, but uh, yeah, number one. I mean, I think it is the number one uh, unsolved American case. I mean, if you talk about globally or anything like that, people think of Jack the Ripper and it's kind of natural to move into to different ones. The Zodiac's definitely top 10 worldwide, but I would say, as far as American unsolved cases, it's it's number one in my opinion. I mean, you have things like John Bonet Ramsey cases like that that are right. really popular, um, but I would rank Zodiac number one because there's so much mystery and intrigue to the case. You know, he didn't kill. You know, the only confirmed kills was was five people. Um, two of them survived, so there were seven victims to what we call the canonical Zodiac crimes, which were four. But um, you know, he had ciphers that he wrote. He wrote codes and one of those uh one of the uh ciphers that he had was just recently solved about four months ago i saw that uh, which i was brought a lot of new thoughts yeah. yeah oh i think it was great you know because it, it really inspired me to keep working harder at it because it, it brought the case back into you know the public perception again uh globally when when those three guys did that it was a team of three guys uh led by a guy named uh, david orange uh and uh he actually subscribes to my youtube channel which is a huge honor because he does not subscribe to anyone else that I know of that has a person of interest in the Zodiac case. So he keeps his mind open about who the Zodiac is. 
but uh, he's a loyal uh, follower of my YouTube channel. So it's a big honor for me that that guy watches it because he headed that team that solved that cipher, uh, which is amazing. It's called the 340 cipher because it has 340 characters in it. But those guys finally broke that code. Now, unfortunately, it didn't lead us to a name of who the Zodiac was, but it did give us a little more insight to the, who, who the Zodiac killer was. And uh, because this cipher was far more complex uh, then the first one that was solved early on in the case, which was called the 408 cipher, because it had 408 characters but that got solved by a school teacher named Donald Gene Harden. Um, soon after it was sent, you know, maybe a month or so after it was sent back in 1969, a period that the Zodiac crimes happened. And so that was a big deal. That cipher getting solved it was really good. And it really kind of uh, fueled my fire to really should break this case wide open. Now, it's been a while since I've looked at the Zodiac case, but I know I've heard a bunch of interviews with a man that thinks that it was his father that actually was the Zodiac killer. And, I, and I've heard that man's name, even though I don't, it escapes me. I've heard it thrown around several times as that's who yeah. they believe it is. And of course, he's passed away. So what right, are your that's, thoughts? That's, on that? uh, that's Gary Stewart that you're talking about. Yes. He believes his father, uh, Earl, a man named Earl Van Best Jr. was the Zodiac killer. And as far as the hardcore Zodiac sleuths go and stuff like that, he's, and I hate to be too, too critical, but Earl Van Best Jr. is at the bottom of the list. He really is. I mean, even, even for people that don't have a particular suspect, because I always come off as biased because I have one, but even for people that don't come out with, with, with the known suspect and just study the case a lot, guys like Michael Butterfield, who's a Zodiac killer expert, uh, it's going to rank Earl Van Best Jr. at the bottom of the at the bottom of the heat for Zodiac suspects. There's just really not much at all that's compelling for him to be a suspect. And everything that I, I know the book's pretty good because it talks about uh, you know what happened with his father and 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 it's kind of an interesting story and, and how he met his mother really young and kind of the life the guy led. And I know it's you know I had a writer help him write it, so it's a I think it's a pretty compelling read. But the stuff as far as his dad being the Zodiac was kind of like just copy and pasted from the police files, you know, trying to fit it into his 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 dad. So as far as the Zodiac suspect goes, he's he's probably one of the worst. All right. Well, we're going to go to your newest book out. This just came out a couple of months ago. Out of Bounds. What happened to the Yuba County Five? Now, this is the main reason that I brought you on the show, even though I've loved all this other stuff. I have a fascination with this case. I know the first time that I looked into it was probably about four years ago. I've said a thousand different times I was going to do an episode on this show on it, and I just never really felt like I could do it justice to, from the, the information I was getting. Uh, one of my favorite all-time mysteries was... Uh, Diatlov Pass, or depending on how you pronounce it, Diatlov, or however everybody pronounces yeah, it different. Diatlov, yeah. Diatlov is the most common. I've always called it Diatlov because, you know, that's what I do is mispronounce stuff. But <laughs> I've heard this always called, you know, the American Diatlov Pass incident because of all the strange, different characteristics of it. And I thought, you know, when I saw that, that you had written a book on this, I thought you're the perfect person to just come on and just kind of shed some light on people who have not heard this story as to what happened here as far as like the factual things of what we do know. And uh, so, I mean, if you can kind of walk us through, I know I don't expect you to get the whole book away, but just in general for somebody who had never heard the story in layman's terms, how you would put what happened here. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, it is a fascinating case, like you said. And, uh, you know, it was only got on my radar maybe a year ago. And I don't know how I missed it. I mean, I was familiar with the Dyatlov Pass incident, which you were referring to. And that was, of course, the case where nine Russian hikers um, mysteriously were killed in the the, the, the Ural Mountains uh, in Russia. And that was in 1959, actually, in February of 1959. So there are some parallels to the Yuba County 5 case. And uh, we guys they were cold, you know, they were in the mountains and they were cold. And you'll see where that plays into the Yuba mm-hmm. County five disappearance. But the Yuba County five incident took place uh, started in February 1978. So, you know, had that February connection going in some of the cold. So uh, there is a lot of parallels with the Outlaw Pass incident. But, uh, you know, I saw a video on YouTube about the Yuba County five and I can't remember which one. I think it was called the, the that exact title was called the boys from Yuba City. And I think it was an English guy. Some of these guys in England just spend so much time making these documentaries and stuff on YouTube that are great. I have a little video on it, but uh, these guys really do a great job and uh, they'd have a lot of subscribers and they'll do, you know, one offs of these type of cases. But I watched that and I was fascinated with it. You know, I just had to, I had to know more and I didn't and I was shocked that no one's ever written a book about this case. And somebody, uh, you know, one lady wrote a book of like three different stories and she covered one of the stories in her book, but it was like really short. It's nothing that she didn't present anything that people didn't already know from YouTube or just pretty widely available on the Internet. But I was shocked that no one had ever written a full book on the Yuba County Five. So I wanted to go out and try to get enough information to write an entire book on. But uh, just given the background on this case really quick. So as I mentioned, it's uh, February 1978, you know, people still got that 70s style going. And um, this involves five friends. That's where you get the Yuba County 5-4. Yuba County is in California, by the way. A lot of people always ask where that is. And there is a Yuba City in Yuba County, California. But these guys were actually from a town called Marysville that was in Yuba County. And uh, a couple of them were from a town called Olivehurst, which is just outside of Marysville. So for all intents and purposes, they were from Marysville. But anyway... Four of these guys had developmental disabilities. Now, um, that's how they all came to know each other. They were going to a, a vocational um, program called the Gateway Projects, and that was based in Yuba City. And, um, you know, these guys were, uh, you know, they were slow learners. And, you know, they ranged in age, ages from uh, 24 up to 32 years old. So these guys were literally like um, they were boys in men's bodies. And, you know, they had different levels of, uh, you know, that they were affected. One was uh, Jackie Hewitt. He probably had the IQ of about 50. He was the worst affected. You know, he was, uh, people would probably just consider him back in the 70s just retarded. And then uh, the least affected of the four, of four of these guys that were friends was uh, Jack Madruga. He went by the nickname Doc. And people would describe Jack as just really shy, you know, just a little slow and really, really shy. But Jack had a driver's license and he'd actually... Uh, served in Vietnam. He drove a truck in Vietnam. I don't think he ever saw any combat, but he drove a truck. So, you know, you kind of get the range there about how, how bad, you know, going down to Jackie and then up to Jack, who's not that bad. He could drive down to Jackie, who was really affected. And then another one of the boys was uh, named Ted Weir. And Ted was a 70s looking guy with frizzy hair. And he would often wave to people. And uh, when they didn't wave back, he would get really upset. He didn't understand why random strangers wouldn't just wave back at him because he would excitedly wave at total strangers. And Ted was really good at softball and uh, and he liked baseball, too. And he always wondered why he couldn't throw the baseball as well as is, uh, you know, a famous pitcher or he couldn't hit as well as Mickey Mantle and stuff like that. 
And then, you know, rounding out the group of four, and then we'll bring the fifth member in in a minute, is uh, Bill Sterling. Now, Bill was uh, pretty affected, but but not as bad as, like, let's say, Jack. He was kind of in the middle, you know. Bill was just really shy, and he was very religious. He it would go to uh, to hospitals and visit mentally ill people and read religious texts to them. It was one of his favorite things to do. So that's kind of how these four guys became friends because they were all similar with their learning disabilities and they were affectionately known as the boys because they were they were boy-like and uh they, that was a term of endearment for them and then comes the, the fifth member that's going to round out the Yuba County Five and his name was Gary Mathias and Gary met the met the other four boys at the Gateway Projects because Gary was getting uh, some drug counseling Gary had a really checkered past he had been in the army in Germany and uh, what makes Gary really complicated is he did not have a learning disability, but uh, he had schizophrenia pretty bad. But at the time that uh, he got together with the other four boys, it was about eight months before they eventually went missing. And um, so Gary is, uh, you know, a drug counselor there. And he meets the, the boys because the, the counselor there at Gateway Projects wants somebody that knows sports pretty well to teach these guys how to play basketball better. Cause this is the love these, all these guys had together was basketball. And they were on a uh, team there at gateway projects called the gateway Gators. And it was a special Olympics basketball team. So Gary was brought in and met them to kind of, you know, teach them to be better basketball players. Gary had played football in high school and he was a pretty good basketball player. Now, a couple of the guys were already pretty good at sports like uh, doc Madruga, but uh, you know, his, um, cousin and his brother were really good athletes and he and he just had it in the family so he was pretty good but then you had Jackie that had to literally learn how to touch the basketball so this is how Gary winds up being the outlier of the group and the in the fifth member so um, that brings us to the fateful uh, late afternoon of Friday February 24 1978 and uh, these five guys want to go see their favorite basketball team play and that was the uh, the UC Davis Aggies and they were going to play the Chico State Wildcats in, uh, at their, on their home court in Chico, California. So Chico is about an hour's drive, roughly north. It was roughly northwest of, uh, of Marysville, where they were from. So the guys load up in Doc Madruga's 1969 Mercury Montego. And Jack loved that car. He, he worked a little bit and he had some uh, pension from being in the military and bought this car. And it was a real sporty two-door real heavy american car and uh that was jack's baby i mean that car was mint condition i mean he wouldn't even take it to places that would mess it up if he thought it would and i mean he washed it he just cared for that car he loved it more than anything but jack was always the uh the designated driver because he's the only one that had a license gary matthias actually had a driver's license but he never owned a car so jack just wound up being the driver so jack heads out uh, that evening and all these five guys are going to go see their favorite team play. So he picks everybody up. And I think Gary was the very last person he picked up. So all five guys are in the car now and they stop by Bill Sterling's uh, parents gas station to top off Jack's car with gas. Sorry. I, I, sometimes I'll call him doc. Sometimes I call him Jack, but uh, he went by doc, but anyway, they top off the car with gas and, and uh, away they went up to, uh, to watch the basketball game in Chico. And by all accounts, they make it to Chico just fine. They are, are seen at the game by a guy that worked for the local newspaper. I think it was a Chico uh, Enterprise newspaper. I remember seeing them. And uh, their team won. The uh, UC Davis Aggies won. So the, all the boys are in high spirits, all five of them, uh, getting to see that, the, you know, a rare road win for their basketball team. 
So after the game, they, they load back up into uh, Madruga's car and they drive over to a place called Bears Market. It was just a couple blocks away from the stadium where the game was held. And they bought some snacks and some drinks, some milk and some, uh, you know, just some things to eat for the for the hour trip home. So uh, they load up in the car and uh, their families never see them again. You know, just an hour drive. They never show up. So it's sometime around three in the morning. And I think it was uh, I think it was Ted Weir's mother first makes a call over to uh, Bill Sterling's mother and says, have you seen the boys that should have been home, you know, at least two or three hours ago? You, you know, have you seen them? You know, they're, they're really worried at this point because all these guys live at home, every one of them, even Gary Mathias. Uh, and she says, no, I haven't seen them. I'm very worried. So all the families wind up communicating to each other and find out that none of them have shown up now. And then, then it becomes, you know, seven in the morning. They're in a panic at this point. You know, where are these guys? They should have been home. They're, I mean, they're worried sick. And uh, they really know something's wrong because that day, that next Saturday, is um, that the day they really went missing was Friday night, February 24th. But the next day on February 25th, they had a really important basketball game to play with their team, the Gateway Gators. And it was a Special Olympics championship game. And the winner of that game was going to go to Los Angeles and have this big trip. And uh, there was a lot, you know, a lot on the line. They were all looking forward to playing in that game. They had all laid out their, their basketball uniforms the night before. And uh, Gary Mathias kept telling his mom, hey, don't let me oversleep. You know, we're going to the basket. You know, we're going to go see our team play Friday night. But, don't, do, you know, I might be home a little. And they were all really looking to, forward to it, all five of them. So the guys were supposed to meet up at about 9 a.m. that Saturday morning at a, at a local store, and then they were going to drive to Sacramento to play in this big Special Olympics game. So when nobody showed up there at 9 a.m., it was full-on panic because they knew something was very wrong for them not to meet up and go play in their game. So the police were called out, and uh, they immediately started searching. And they, nothing turned up until uh, the following Monday. I think that's uh, – uh, February 27th, they located Jack Madruga's Berkeley Montego, and it was it was abandoned way up on a mountain road, just out you know just outside of the Plumas National Forest, and this was way off track for them. They don't know why the car would have been up there. It was uh, pretty much like an hour to the east, but an hour and a half away from Marysville. I mean, there's no reason they would have ever gotten off course like that, uh, and no one could explain why the car was there. So, no, of course, nobody's in the car and they don't know where they went. So when the car was located, they found that the car had a quarter of a tank of gas left in it. So there was no reason, you know, it didn't run out of gas and they still couldn't figure out why it was there. And they also determined that the car was in perfect mechanical condition because they hotwired it and drove it back to a town called Oroville. But the wrappers were still in the car. The driver's side windows partially rolled down, which was very odd in itself because Jack Madruga would have never left his car window rolled down. That was his baby, especially in freezing cold temperatures like that. He would have never done it. So that was very strange. Uh, the keys were not in the car, just some of the wrappers. There was maps inside the glove box of California, that, that very area they were in. Uh, and uh, it just made no sense. If they got lost, they could have just turned around because it looked like the car may have gotten just partially snuck in the snow. But five grown men like that that were athletic could have easily gotten the car out of the, the snow that it was in at the time. So this was already not adding up. So immediately the police start searching the entire area. 
can't find anything. Nothing's turning up. They're doing, they're going in a radius of where the car was found and, and nothing's turning up. So, uh, you know, they have snow cats are going around. I mean, they're, they're, they're doing everything they can. People are hiking through the woods and then, uh, it starts getting really bad with this, with the snowfall, you know, a few days following the disappearance and it got so bad they had to, you know, postpone the search. It was just, it was futile to try to look. The snow was just so thick uh, up the mountain. I think they were at elevation about 5,000 feet. So it was pretty, pretty high up. And uh, so no one can understand why they would have ever been there. There's nothing makes sense. So they just keep, keep looking and nothing's turning up. Well, it was starting to get media attention. It's getting in the newspapers at this point, especially locally around you know, Chico and uh, Yuba City and uh, a town called Oroville, that whole area is, you know, hearing about this now because there's these five grown men that just went, just went missing, you know, just fell off the face of the earth. No one knows why, where, where they went. And then um, a witness comes forward and uh, his name was Joe Shones. He's a really interesting character, I was finding out. But Joe Shones claimed that uh, after seeing this on the news, that he recalled seeing uh, the boys on that very Friday night, they went missing. He said that he was driving his uh, VW Bug. It was an older VW Bug. And he was going to check out uh, the snowpack ahead of a snow weekend. He was planning on taking his wife and daughter to their, their little snow cabin. And um, Shones got stuck in the snow on the way up to check this out, uh, you know, ahead of this weekend that he was going to spend with his wife and his daughter. And uh, he claims that the, his car got stuck in the snow. And uh, he got out to get get his car unstuck and he had a heart attack, had a pretty, you know, a mild heart attack, but a heart attack. And he said he was in a lot of pain. So all he could do is just get back into his car and keep the heater on and just try to stay warm. So at some point, you know, this was late on that, that, that Friday evening, maybe around seven or so. So Shones is in there in his car trying to stay warm and uh, something wakes him up. You know, he kind of like passed out a little bit from the pain or something and something and uh, he wakes up around midnight. And he looks behind him and he can see headlights coming up behind him and a car stopping. And uh, he sees some figures get out and it looks like, about, you know, five men and uh, one and a woman and a baby, which is strange. And he, you know, that's how he describes that. And he heard these whistling noises and he didn't know what that was. So uh, he gets out of his car just slightly and he says, help me, help me. I've had a heart attack. You know, I need I need to get to the hospital. Please help me. And he said none of the, you know, he was close enough for them to hear him. And he said nobody responded. And he was angry. He's like, why aren't these people helping me? I'm in all this pain. They won't, you know, they're not helping me. And he sees the figures, you know, walking in front of the headlights of the car behind him. So, you know, after a couple of minutes, the headlights went out on the car. And it appeared that all the figures got back in the car or just disappeared. They were gone. And no one ever came to help him. So he just he has no other choice but to get back into his little VW bug with, with the heater still on. So he still has gas in the car because it's still running. Well, about three hours after that or, or so, he thinks, you know, that passage of time, he hears a whistling noise again. And uh, another car, he sees another car come up behind him and it looks like they're parked. And he sees uh, what, he's, what he says look like flashlight beams, you know, people searching. And uh, so he gets out of his, his car again. He's still in pain from the heart attack. And he says, help me, help me. You know, I've, I've got to get to the dark, you know, the, the hospital. I've had a heart attack. You know, please come help me. And he said, nobody responded again. Now it's really angry. You know, this is the second time. Right. So <laughs> suddenly the flashlight beams go out and they're gone. And then he also later amended that story to say he thought he saw a truck pull up behind the car. On the second time he saw a car, he thought a red truck pulled up behind that car, which gets interesting later. 
And uh, so that was it. That was his story. And it kind of changed a few times, which always made me a little suspicious of the guy. So I went on a mission on finding out everything I could about him. So um, the only other sighting there was of the boys happened in a town called Brownsville. And that was about an hour away from where Jack's car was found abandoned up, up in the, in the Plumas national forest. And the lady said uh, she recalled seeing uh, five guys that met their description going, going into a uh, convenience store. And she said one was using a payphone. There was two inside trying to get food and, and, and stuff like that. But that, that sighting never really panned out in Brownsville. People thought it might because Gary Mathias was said to have some friends that um, lived right outside of Brownsville and uh, never really panned out. You know, the families thought, yeah, it could have been them, but, but there's no way they would have been in a car. You know, she said they were in a red truck, which is interesting that, that Shones added that little detail to his story. But uh, she said they were in a red pickup. And, and none of the families would understand why they would have been in a car other than Jack's Mercury Montego. So that sighting really went nowhere. And it only came up after they started putting reward posters around uh, various towns in Northern California that weren't real far away. And of course, the police checked the entire route that the boys would have would have taken, even if they got lost. Um, they never found anything, you know, all the way from Chico, um, all the way to where they were. They never found any any trace at all. So those were the only really two sightings that ever came forward that had any merit whatsoever. And, um, you know, still snowed in, nothing turns up. They bring in a psychic and, uh, actually it was, uh, Jack Madruga's uh, grandmother who knew of a psychic locally in the Yuba city area that had a pretty good success rate of things. And they brought her in and, uh, she uh, did a psychic reading or whatever with some of the stuff that the, the boys owned. And she saw a, a particular house and she was convinced this is where they were being held. And the police, you know, they, they took her seriously because they were so desperate to find them at this point. And uh, they would, you know, one of the police um, detectives working on the case drove through all these different houses trying to find that, that, that particular house this psychic found. And they never turned out to, you know, to go anywhere. But that's how desperate they were that they employed a psychic like that. So it's getting harrowing at this point. And then as about, you know, four or so weeks went by, they know that the chances of finding the guys alive is, is, is really dwindling. Um, they're getting real, you know, even more desperate, but they don't slow down and the families are still holding out hope they're going to be found. Well, it's fast forward all the way to June 4th of 1978. So this is all of March, all of April, all of May has gone by now without these guys being found. Uh, the snow's starting to melt now because it's early June. So the, the search the, the search has opened up. Still, they're still looking, but not as heavily because they probably assume these guys are dead, but they don't know if they're being, they were kidnapped or there was some kind of alien force took them off or, or whatever, but absolutely no hint of them has been seen or heard from since that night of February 24th. I mean, outside of these two sightings I talked about. So on... Um, June 4th of 1978, there was a group of motorcycle riders going for like a, a you know, just a, a pleasant ride through the Plumas National Forest. And they stopped upon a, uh, a forest service camp that had a, a little a set of like five trailers there. There was one main trailer that was used by the Forest Service uh, that wasn't always manned. It was one of these that was kind of remote because it was only there for certain forest fires and um and things like that. Some of they, some of those would be manned all year and some would be, you know, only manned when they needed them. And this particular one was only when they would need it, but it was a, a forest service trailer. And then there was um, 
four surrounding smaller trailers that had supplies and food and things like that. So these guys uh, were pretty tired from riding motorcycles all day, and they just wound up stopping near this trailer in this forest service camp. And um, one of the guys gets off his motorcycle, and he took off his helmet. And the smell, this putrid, horrible smell just almost knocked him over when he took his helmet off. And he thought, you know, there's got to be a dead animal around here. And he couldn't couldn't see where the, where the source was coming from, but it intrigued him. He's like, this, God, there's got to be like a dead bear or something around here. The smell is so bad. And it finally dawned on him that it was emanating from the main uh, forest service trailer. So he walks up to a window and he sees someone laying on a bed and it was um, the dead body of Ted Weir laying in that bed. And this guy somehow got inside and saw Ted Weir's body just laying there and Ted had died. You know, he literally froze to death laying on this bed. And it was an odd scene because, uh, Ted Weir was about 200 pounds when he went missing. And now he was about 130 pounds. So he lost about 70 pounds. And uh, there was, I think, seven bed sheets pulled up to his neck. And they were perfectly pulled up to his neck like someone had done it for him. And Ted was missing some of his toes from, you know, due to severe frostbite. And gangrene had already set in on his feet. And it was just this really strange scene. There was a gold watch laying next to uh, the bed that Ted was laying on. It was missing its crystal. It was a gold Walthman watch. Uh, Ted's signet ring was on the table next to him. And uh, one of the windows was broken out in the trailer. And it was just this really odd scene. So, of course, the motorcycle rider went back and told his fr you know, friends that he was riding with. And they got the police out there. So uh, they found one of the boys, finally, after all this time. And, uh, you know, that's where the mystery really starts right then is where they found the body of Ted Weir. And it just gets even stranger. So uh, in the coming days after that, after after June 4th, they found the bodies of Jack Madruga and Jackie Hewitt and uh, and Bill Sterling. They, and they uh, surmised that when the guys got out of the car and by the way, this forest service trailer camp was always reporting the news of being about 19 miles away from where the car was abandoned in a place called Rogers cow camp. And uh, the forest service trailer was in a place called the Daniel zinc camp. And uh, as the crow flies, that's really closer to about six or seven miles. So it's a little misleading when you re read the newspaper reports, but they don't know what track the, the boys took when they left jack's car that evening they don't know exactly how they went but they think that they may have followed the uh, path made by a snowcat vehicle because that thursday before they went missing a snowcat went up to that very fort uh, u.s forest service trailer to uh take the snow off the roof because the roof would collapse so they went up there that thursday took the snow off the roof but they had left their, their you know their path where that little machine you know went the snowcat that would kind of plow a little path all the way up to that trailer so they believed that the boys found that path and they just kept walking down that path. And remember, they're wearing street clothes. They didn't even take their jackets that night, despite their parents telling them, hey, you know, I know you're going to the basketball game. And you're planning on coming right home. But the boys said, no, nah, I don't think we'll need our jackets because they were just going to leave the basketball game and come home. Why would they? But remember that they're wearing street clothes and it's freezing now. And they're, they're at a 5000 foot elevation. I mean, it's cold. I mean, really cold. And uh it, so it just, it's one of the things that makes no sense because they literally went up the mountain after they abandoned the car. They went up the mountain, and that's really unusual for anyone, even with people that have learning disabilities, because it's more natural to go back down the mountain, down the road, 
if you're lost or the car got stuck and let's just say they couldn't get it unstuck, they went up the mountain, which never made any sense, but they think they may have followed that, that, uh, that pathway left by the snow cat. Well, to the police, it appeared that, uh, Bill, I think it was Bill Sterling and Jack Madruga were probably walking together and literally uh, died of hyperthermia before they even made it to the trailer. It was just so cold. They just laid down and probably went to sleep and died. Uh, and it appears that obviously we know Ted Weir made it to the trailer because his body was still there. And um, it was estimated that Ted was alive in that trailer for about eight to 10 weeks after they went missing. I mean, that is a long time, eight to 10 weeks suffering, literally freezing to death. And the odd thing about that is in one of the little storage uh, sheds outside, there was enough uh, MRE type military food to last, would have lasted all five of them a year. There was plenty of food there. And there was only, I think about 13 or so of these sea uh, rations uh, that were open uh, for them to eat. And they don't know who ate them. I assume Ted Weir maybe had some of them and maybe a couple of the other boys being Jackie Hewitt or Gary Mathias, because it looks like, Maybe three of them did make it to the trailer, but only a small portion of that food was even consumed, which was is very strange. And the trailer also had propane hooked up to it that would have provided ample heat for that trailer for the whole cold season and then some. And uh, they just never saw it. The propane was never turned on. They never started a fire, which was really strange. There was matches in there. There was plenty of paperback books for kindling to make a fire outside or whatever. And they never attempted to even make a fire, which is really strange um, because if Gary Mathias made it and they surmised that Gary did make it to the trailer because his shoes were found in the trailer and um, never even tried to start a fire, which makes absolutely no sense. So uh, as I said, in the following days after they find Ted, they found the frozen uh, remains and just the bones of, uh, of Jackie Hewitt and Jack Madruga. And then I think, uh, a little later, maybe the next day, they found the remains of Bill Sterling. So they found now four of the five guys. And uh, Gary Mathias was never found. They ne to this day, Gary has never been found. His remains have never been found. We, they don't know if he made it out of those woods or if he just got further along and, and died were in a place where they could never find him. But, um, you know, the other three guys that were there were outside when they died, uh, they were, you know, ravaged by animals. Oddly enough, when they found... Uh, Jack Madruga, he, his right arm was, was, was removed probably by you know, wild animals, but he was holding his wristwatch in his left hand uh, when he died, which, is, which, which was really strange. His car keys were still in his pocket uh, when they found Jack's body. And it was a really horrific scene because uh, some of the family members were up there taking part of the search. So they were actually there when they found the remains of their loved ones. So really bad scene. Uh, Bill Sterling's father was there when they found his um his remains and uh you know he called out to the the guy that found it and said hey I, you know, are, you, are you sure it's him and he said yes sir we found the photographs because uh bill sterling's wallet was still there and he had a photograph of his twin sisters so they knew it was him so uh his you know father literally collapsed on the ground and had to be consoled by a friend and i have a picture of that. It's really sad and it's just so awful you know that the family members are there when they found him and then finally knew their fate but uh to this day Gary Mathias was, has never been found. And, uh, you know, what went on in that trailer? Nobody knows. They found Gary Mathias's tennis shoes or the family said that they were Gary's shoes. So uh, Ted Weir's shoes were missing. So they think that Gary 
uh, took off his shoes and put on Ted's, which were larger. Ted had bigger feet than Gary because Ted had more sturdy leather shoes. So they think maybe Gary, at some point, Gary was taking care of Ted for those weeks that he lived. And then at some point, Gary, you know, after, maybe after Ted finally died eight to 10 weeks later, after they went missing, Gary put on Ted's shoes and went, you know, struck it out on his own and maybe got out of the, got out of the woods. But to this day, they don't know why a fire was never started because remember Gary had schizophrenia when he got off his medication, he was pretty bad, but he was taking it regularly before he went missing. And a lot of people like to think, well, maybe Gary killed his friends. And I totally pushed back on that. I don't, Gary had, would have had no reason to have killed his friends. He was just as excited to play in that, that special Olympics game as anybody that next day. So that would make no sense. Now, if Gary went a couple of weeks without his meds, he's going to start getting a little, a little weird because Gary did have a violent past. Uh, he had a real bad LSD trip in high school. And uh, according to a sister who I know, uh, which was good getting to meet her because no one's ever interviewed a member of the Matthias family or that was related to Gary, but I'm the first one that did. So I was very lucky to find her and that she would talk to me. And uh, she thinks everything went bad for Gary when he joined the military. Uh, he just couldn't take it. You know, I don't think he took his medicine regularly. He punched a couple of MPs. Um, I think he finally got a medical discharge uh, from the military. He was over in Germany, you know, never saw combat or anything like that, but it was just a bad experience for him. And, um, he comes back to the Marysville area and he's doing drugs and hanging out with people. Gary was in a band called the fish shade and he loved the Rolling Stones and he was a talented singer. I mean, he was in the battle of the bands uh, there in Yuba city that would play at the County fair. And he uh, had a girlfriend, you know, Gary was this real nice looking guy and he wore Coke bottle glasses. These really thick rim glasses. Cause he uh, had such terrible vision. He literally would have, have double vision when he wasn't wearing his glasses and that's one of the things his stepfather said when, when Gary was missing was, uh, I think we'll find his glasses. He wore these thick rim glasses and a bear wouldn't eat glasses, right? And uh, so they were just, he was just convinced he would find those glasses. But um, Gary had fallen out of the car when he was 10 years old, um, going somewhere with his mother. He literally rolled out of the car and hit his head so severely it almost killed him took him to the hospital. And uh, I think he was blind for a few days, literally totally blind. And then when his vision started to return after the swelling went down, they told him, you know, you're going to be wearing these glasses for, forever, you know, because your, your, your vision's so messed up. And uh, so that's why Gary wore these big stick Coke bottle glasses. And I think at the time he met, went missing, he finally found some contacts that kind of worked for him. But uh, I'm pretty sure he was probably wearing his glasses that night. So it is strange they never found him. But um, like I said, Gary kind of had a violent past. He had an attempted rape of his cousin's wife when he wasn't on his medication. And his cousin caught him trying to straddle his wife, who was, recovering from surgery and she was heavily drugged up uh, from recovering from a surgery and the cousin's like what are you doing you know and called the police on Gary and he said I'll oh, go ahead call the cops or whatever so you know lots of bar fights uh, things like that and but, uh, Gary's an interesting guy I mean he was a survivor I mean is uh, even when he wasn't on his medication he was just a survivor he was in a, uh, a mental home for a while um and he literally broke out like through the plumbing system, something like Shawshank Redemption or something. The guys <laughs> that got out through the plumbing or something, you know, and they're, where's Gary? You know, there's a, a giant hole near the toilet. You know, there, there he went. And uh, there's another story where Gary went to visit his grandmother in Portland, Oregon, or actually it was in Corvallis, Oregon um, uh, area, you know, close you know, outside of Portland. And, uh, you know, the grandmother got, you know, sideways with him. And Gary just said, okay, I'll leave. And he wound up walking home all the way back to uh, Marysville, which is like 
550 miles or so, literally walked. And uh, or, or so he claimed and they believed him. And he was like literally eating cat and dog food. People would leave on porches or milk that the milkman would deliver. And he, and he literally walked all the way home to Marysville. And when he got home, he knew exactly where he lived, but he couldn't remember the name of his, his stepfather or his mother that he was living with at the time. He just knew where he lived, kind of like an animal, you know, where they just, right. they just instinctively know how to get home. And Gary, you know, showed up and they and his stepfather opened the door. And he was like, hey, Gary, what are you doing? He's like, who are you? And he's like, I'm your stepdad. You know, that's why you're here. And he literally didn't know who he was. He just knew that he lived there. I mean, that's just how weird Gary was. I mean, just uh, just this gritty survivor with the severe mental illness. So a lot of people like to think in, in one of the theories of this missing persons case, that, you know, obviously Gary got skittish not being on his meds and turned on his friends. But that really makes no sense because obviously someone was taking care of Ted Weir in that trailer. But what's odd about it is, is Gary, when he's on his medication, was, was, was like a normal person, you know, with normal intellect. He would have known to start a fire. He was in the military. He would have found those sea rations. And at least one of those sea rations was opened with what they call a P-38 can opener. And the only two people that would have known how to do that was either Jack Madruga or uh, Gary Mathias, because they had both been in the military. So one of the two had to have been there because, uh, and they don't think it's Jack because they think Jack literally uh, succumbed to hypothermia before he made it to the trailer. So a lot of things point to Gary making it to the trailer, namely his shoes. So uh, it, it's really strange because when we get into more of these theories of the case, there's uh, one of the strongest ones is Gary not making it to that trailer. So this, that that's where sense. this case gets really bizarre, right? So let me ask you this. What, what are your thoughts on this? You said as the crow flies, about six miles from the car to the the place the, where they ended up. And right. if Gary made it to the camp and saw that there were problems, wouldn't he try to make it back to the car, knowing that was really a short walk for him, considering he just walked over 500 miles? But, I mean, that seems like it would be the smart thing would be other than eating the food and turning the propane on. But even if you didn't realize that it was propane, the smart thing would have been to walk right back to the car at least him and try to, you know, go get help. That's a great point. I think you're the first person that ever pointed that out. Um, why wouldn't he, you know, why wouldn't he? Because he would have known where the car was and he, he could have just gone back, you know, the way he came, you know, downhill, which would have been easier because now he's going downhill. And, and plus the weather's a lot better by then too. And, uh, you know, other, well, other than the fact that he, you know, if he went back to the car, he might've, you know, who knows what kind of mental state he was in at that point? Because I think when he, when, if it's a week later, he's starting to get really strange with his schizophrenia because he took like I think four different drugs that were pretty heavy duty antipsychotic drugs. So a week later, Gary's starting to get a little weird, you know, mentally. Uh, even though I don't think he, he would have done his friends in. So at, at that point, I don't even think he would have even found the car because one, he doesn't have the keys. They were still in Jack's pocket. And he wouldn't right. have known where Jack's body was because it's probably covered in snow at this point. And uh, it was only discovered later because the snow had melted. So he, there would have been no way. But uh, it is interesting that his shoes were there. And it probably th seems to make the most sense that he swapped shoes with Ted and headed out on his own. They just don't know why they found all the other guys and not Gary. So to this day, they don't know if Gary is in some homeless camp somewhere and just doesn't know who he is. And that's a possibility. And that's a crazy one uh, to think that Gary Mathias is still out there. Cause he is one of the most famous missing persons of all time in America. 
uh, and uh, he could be out there still alive, which is crazy. So, but so I'm gonna I'm gonna play devil's advocate here. So you said that let's say it's a week into it, and he is office meds now for a week. He may be going a little bit if you know a little more crazier than than he would have been uh, a day after being office meds. So we we know that these other bodies were found out and about, but how sure is the timeline of when they died to not know that maybe, you know, Gary took off, maybe one of the other guys, he took off on foot, you know, trying to find, find what's going on. Maybe some of the other guys were the ones that was taking care of Weir when he died and not Gary. And maybe Gary had taken off from the beginning, which is why they struggled, you know, to, to make ends meet and to find the, propane and all that so i mean maybe he went for help immediately and maybe he did go back towards the car and got lost or well he would have done that because he obviously didn't have the keys uh so that shows him but he he could have went out on his own and swapped his shoes from the beginning and left them there thinking he was going to get help maybe went the wrong way or something or maybe a week later they're all still there he goes kind of ballistic and maybe the other, you know, two or three ran away to try to get away from him. And, you know, maybe he did end up, you know, getting them beforehand. Because do we know for a fact, like the, the guys that were found outside of, of the uh, the trailer, if if they were there, you know, maybe a week less than they maybe think they were. And, and maybe they survived a lot longer than people thought. You know, maybe it's possible, you know, so that's my question. You, we really, you know, that's know possible. That, that's they, possible. That's they a great. That's a great point. I mean, they, they could have been the there or two weeks later for all we know. Yeah. They don't know. They don't know for sure. They, they literally just surmised that, that Jack and Bill died. They were together. You know, they they were found pretty close together, roughly three miles away from the trailer. They just surmised that they laid down and went to sleep, but they don't know that for a fact. I mean, they can't prove that those two guys didn't make to the, make it to the trailer and then headed back out. So you're right. You know, they don't know for sure. They just kind of surmised that by the position of the bodies, they were together, uh, but they can't tell. I mean, this is already June. I mean, months have gone by. It was, you know, they're buried in snow. Uh, there's not much left after the animals got to, to got to their remains. There just wasn't a whole lot of these bodies left. I mean, the only way they could ID, like I said, uh, uh, Bill Sterling was from his wallet that had a picture of his sisters in it. And I think maybe a social security card too, as well. So uh, that's the only way, I mean, and then I think uh, with uh, Jackie Hewitt, it was dental records finally that, that finally confirmed it was, it was him because they were, they were just so ravaged by the animals. So they, no, they don't know uh, what happened. I mean, that would make more sense if Gary did head out early and never found the propane because when he was still on his meds, there, he, he certainly should have at least started a fire at minimum or got into more of the food. I mean, but the, it, at the very most basic level, why would he have not started a fire? And then when you talk about Ted Weir still there, somebody was caring for Ted because he would not, they said that he would have been in so much pain from that frostbite and gangrene on his feet. He was missing, I think, four of his toes. And uh, they said that would have been so painful that he would not have even been able to pull those bed sheets up to his neck like they were found. And it's hard to imagine uh, maybe anyone, maybe but Jack Madruga that could have done that. Cause like I said, he was the least affected of the four boys outside of Gary. And, uh, but I wouldn't think that, that, uh, that, that Bill or definitely Jackie could not have done that because Jackie was, you know, pretty bad off as far as his mental state was. I mean, he had like a 50 IQ. So I don't think he could have done that. Maybe Madruga could have.
So it's one of the things to consider, like, you know, how, who kept Ted alive for those weeks. Um, it's, it's crazy. I mean, uh, you know, and, and, and Ted couldn't really take care of himself. There was an incident that Ted's brother told about when Ted was younger and their house caught on fire. And uh, his brother went to his room and said, Ted, we got to get out of the house. I mean, it's literally on fire. And Ted's like, no, no, no. I don't want to leave my room. I got to go to work in the morning. He literally didn't understand that he was going to die if he stayed in that burning house. I mean, that that's uh, how bad that, that Ted Weir was. I mean, mentally, um, just from having that, you know, a, a, you know, a learning disability. So uh, it, it's really crazy, but we don't know. But then we get into all the theories. And that was my goal. Um, you know, I'd love to try to solve this case like I do with these other two we talked about with Zodiac and D.B. Cooper. But with this one, I kind of left it open. I wanted to explore everything that anyone believes, even if it's, uh, you know, what part is fact. I mean, trying to, like, figure out what the newspapers reported, what was true. And because there's so many misleading things in the newspapers. I mean, they, you know, like I said, they always said it was 19 miles away. So you think that, that it's crazy that they could have made it so far in the freezing cold street clothes. Well, the reality is it really wasn't that far. It was pretty far though, considering how cold it was in street clothes that any of them made it to that trailer is insane. But there was a few inaccuracies for sure in the newspaper reports. But, um, you know, my whole thing was, is I wanted to know every theory that was either believed or spoken about this case. I mean, and just lay it out there and let people kind of try to decide and hopefully someone would remember something. So, um, you know, as far as theories go, why they got out of that car, why they went uphill. And I can tell you that all the family said these guys weren't that bad off. They would have known how to, if they got lost, uh, to turn the car around. And I know Jack Madruga's uh, nephew really well, George, and said that he absolutely would have known how to turn that car around. He said he was not that bad off. He just To him, he was just really painfully shy. He was a good driver. He really babied that car. He said he would have absolutely known if he was lost just to turn the car around and he said they would have definitely known how to get that car unstuck in just that little bit of snow. So most of them believe that some compelling force, and this you know goes back kind of like the D outlaw pass incident that you mentioned early on, uh, how those guys just uh, bursted out of their tent and, it, you know, from the inside out, like some crazy thing chased them, you know, and wound up killing them all. That's another one of uh, things that uh, I think, is the reason Yuba County Five is sometimes referred to as the American Outlaw Pass because they believe that something scared the hell out of these guys and made them go up that mountain. That, that, that's the reason they didn't go back down. Something scared them away from that car and up that mountain. They don't know because they don't know if they ran. They don't know if they walked. I just know it's really strange that Jack Madruga would have left that car with the window cracked because it's something he would have never done. His nephew told me that. It's just he was so obsessive about that car he would have never left it with the window even cracked and something i mean they left all their snacks there and something scared them up that mountain i mean people have brought in the ufo theory uh you know it's kind of ties into the missing 411 david politis stuff because now we're talking about a national force you know it's a plumeless national force so you have that element there um you have the missing shoe element that i know comes into a lot of the missing 411 stories so um you know bigfoot comes in i mean everything <laughs> plausible is out there but um i started digging into everything that that may have caused them to go missing and one of the first things that came up and this comes from uh gary matthias's sister that i found gary had two sisters one had passed away uh but i got to know one and she told me everything she knew about this case which was fascinating because no one had ever interviewed her 
And she said there was always a rumor that a fight had started in the parking lot of Bears Market after the boys left the game, which seemed to make some sense because the guys were happy. Their team won. And, of course, they, you know, they're, they're at the away game, right? So they're surrounded by fans of uh, the other team. But I don't think that happened because the game was, wasn't really heavily attended. I think they both probably had mediocre records. It wasn't like a playoff or anything. Right. Um, so uh, there's not a whole lot to back up the theory that there was a fight in the parking lot, but she had heard that rumor back in the day that uh, some guys started picking on Jackie because Jackie was the worst off. And, you know, when you picked on Jackie, he would make these, uh, these kind of howling noises, like, uh, uh, you know, kind of a grunting, like really mm-hmm. disturbed thing when he, when he got stressed out, you know, that's just what he would do. And uh, Jackie started doing that and they were picking on him and Gary would be the one that would come to their defense. Uh, even though the boys were scared of Gary, I will say that I do know that um, because Gary was, was not like them. You know, he wasn't, you know, he didn't have that sweet disposition. That the other four had Gary was a bar, a bar brawler. I mean, he was, uh, didn't take a lot of crap and he could go haywire. That's what his stepfather would call it. Gary, you know, when he's not on his meds, he would go haywire. But as that story went, uh, they started picking on Jackie and Gary, Gary jumped in and there was this big fight ensued. And then uh, somehow the guys were followed after they left Bears Market by these guys they got in a fight with and uh, somehow wound up chasing them up, you know, winding up where they did. And I don't think there's a lot there to that story because they interviewed the woman working at Bears Market that night. And she remembered the boys coming in. They were in high spirits. They bought their snacks. She remembered being mad at them because they came in right at closing time. So now she was going to have to stay late, you know, and uh, she did not remember anything about a fight, any males coming in other than them. She said they were the only ones in because it was so late. She was closing down. So barring, you know, she was still closing up. So when I don't know if she parked in the back or something, but she did not remember anything like that. So I just think that was one of the stories and theories that got out there early on that really didn't have much merit. And, um, Another theory that's very prevalent in that area of Yuba County, California, because, of course, this is this is a famous case, but it's really popular there because that's where these guys were from. And uh, this theory goes that someone that Gary knew uh, had it in for him and they knew that Gary was going to the, the, the basketball game that night in Chico. And they just said, hey, this is going to be the night I'm going to get some revenge on this guy because I got a, a beef to pick with Gary Mathias. So uh, they somehow catch up with the boys somewhere i don't know where somewhere between chico and uh before they get really lost up that road and they meet up in a town called oroville and oroville is kind of to the southeast of chico and still about an hour away from where they found the abandoned car but as this story goes they got the guys to pull over uh over the oroville bridge there's a there's a i mean dam there's a dam there and a bridge that goes over the dam it's called the oroville dam and the guys got out of the car they started kind of a similar story of the other brawl. And they started picking on Jackie Hewitt and he's making these weird noises or whatever. And Gary comes to Jackie's defense and a big fight breaks out and, you know, punches are thrown and the other guys don't really know how to fight. They're kind of athletic and they're, you know, they're grown men, but they don't really, you know, with their mental disposition, right. they're like it's little boys. It's not their nature at all, but it is Gary's. And, uh, but there was four, I think about four other guys that knew how to fight that weren't, you know, disabled like the other four boys. So uh, they start whomping on Gary as they as it's told to me and they wind up throwing Gary over the uh, bridge into the, uh, over the Oroville dam, literally it down into the water, killing him uh, never to be seen again. And uh, of course the question will come like later. Well, if that happened, there's no way he made it to the trailer. That's true. 
uh, there's no way Gary would have made it to the trailer and then, then he's thrown over the dam. I don't think that's possible, but, uh, that story is very prevalent. Um, I, I can't tell you why, but they really believe it. And I, I think the origin is that, uh, a guy that was involved in this, you know, one of the bad guys that was there, uh, came by Gary Matthias's house and said, I know what happened to Gary. And they were like, what? And, uh, so, well, we were, we were following that night with this, the, you know, my friend, uh, we'll just call him the, uh, the bully of, uh, Huba County. We'll just call him that. And, uh, this guy knew Gary and he said, uh, we were with this gentleman, the, the bully, and he got into it, Gary, and, and threw him over the dam. He goes, I was there. He said, another guy I know named, uh, I can't remember his name. I think it was Glenn, drove Jack Madruga's car with the rest of the boys in it up that mountain road and just 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 shot a gun in the air and just ran him up that mountain. He goes, but Gary was already gone at that point. He was dead. They threw him over the dam and killed him. So that was this guy's story. He literally felt bad about it just for being there and told that story to Gary Matthias's mother. Uh, and then, uh, his sister retold it to me. So I think that was probably the initial origin of this story about Gary being thrown over the dam. And I can tell you that, uh, the Hewitt family firmly believes that's what happened. I don't know why. And they live there and they totally believe this, uh, is how it played out. You think this guy had a beef with Gary, the one, you know, guy he used to run around with for a long time, had it in for him, wound up killing him, didn't want to kill the rest of the four. So they just ran him up the mountain. Maybe they, maybe they thought it would kill him or not and just got rid of them. But unfortunately that story doesn't explain how Gary's shoes wind up in the trailer. That's the one thing I was thinking. The only thing that I could say is that all makes complete sense, except that how did Gary's shoes end up winding up in the trailer? Yeah. If, if that ever gets solved, I'm, I tend to believe that theory. Um, but it's, it, it, Gary's family was pretty, you know, very confident. Those were Gary's tennis shoes in the trailer. And his sister also told me that they found, and knowing this has never been reported anywhere, that they found uh, little slips of paper with handwriting on them. That was Gary's handwriting. And they were like little devotionals that said, you can make it, you're going to survive. Uh, um, you're, 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 you're going to be okay. You know, just little things to yourself that he would write down by hand and, and on, on this little, little bitty notepad. And it'd be like, he'd just tear off the piece of paper. Like there were those strips of paper with these little uh, feel good phrases on them. Like you're going to make it Gary. You're, you're a good person, Gary. And, um, she said that she found some of those when she went up to the trailer, at, you know, after all this had happened and they found all the boys and they never found Gary. So she gets into the trailer and searches it and found some of this, these pieces of paper. And she said, one of Gary's counselors taught him to do that. Uh, when, when he started, you know, getting weird or whatever, or starting to go haywire to like write these little messages to yourself. So she said she found those in the trailer and uh, which is odd too, because that would just kind of bolster the whole thing with the shoes. And so I asked her, do you believe this story about this person having an in for Gary? And we know the name of this person. And I never, you know, even in the book, I can't say who it is. I can just tell you he later became a preacher. And this is true. The guy is still alive. And I can't say who it is, but people locally, I think some know who he is. And, um, you know, he had a really bad reputation back in the in the 70s. I mean, uh, really, a really bad. I mean, the town bully, literally. I mean, a tough guy that, that, that he was an enforcer, literally got what he wanted when he wanted it. People hung around this guy out of sheer fear. And uh, this guy had a lot of runs in a lot of runs with the law. He was in prison for a while. And uh, he's certainly the type that could have done it. And he definitely if he had it in for Gary, he was going to get rid of Gary. And I know enough about this guy that I researched that he was very capable of doing somebody. And if he if he was that angry with him you know, bad record with drugs, prison, like I said. 
So he makes a good candidate for this person that allegedly may have thrown Gary over the Oroville Dam. And uh, it just makes the, the, this, uh, this whole thing so, so much more interesting. So um, getting into another theory, uh, and this comes from um, Jack Madrugas. Of course, I said his nickname was Doc. His family all called him Doc. I don't know where he got the nickname, but they all called him Doc. But anyway, this was uh, his niece, and her name is Kathy. And um, Kathy told me this story, and I got to meet, you know, I got to get to know her and talk to her on the phone quite a bit, exchanged a lot of messages. And, uh, you know, so she obviously knows this case well because his, ne- his uh, nephew, George, and Kathy were, were, were older. They weren't that far apart in age with uh, Doc. And so they knew him really well. You know, because they, they were closer than age. I think uh, he had a couple of older siblings that had already moved out of the house or whatnot. And he was uh, still living at home. So anyway, she said her aunt, which was one of uh, Doc's older sisters, told her this story about a year before she passed away. And now this has already been about eight months ago. So it was a year before that. So let's just say roughly a year and eight months ago. She told Kathy uh, that uh, after the boys had gone missing, that she was on a mission to find out who did in her little brother, which was Doc Madruga, AKA Jack. And uh, she was going to do her own investigation and not tell anybody and be, you know, kind of keep her notes meticulously and, uh, and, and start asking questions around the Yuba County area. Like, what do you know? What are the rumors? Um, you know, who knows this and that. And she somehow got some information that she found the man that was responsible for, her brother's death. And of course the reason the Yuba County five went missing. So I'm like, I mean, when she's telling me this, I'm like frozen. Right. I'm like, Whoa, (laughs) this is going to be great. I want to know. Right. And uh, so uh, she talks to her and she said, uh, I did all this research and I have it, you know, I kept it all on here in my purse, uh, all the notes. And, and, and she says, well, well, what happened? You know, she goes, tell me. And I mean, and she didn't tell the exact, year that this event happened because she's you know looking back many years now but i think this might have been maybe eight years after the boys were found you know sometime in the 80s or so so she her so uh she finds this man she feels is responsible and she gets a hold of him and kind of remembered him from high school or something and talked the man into meeting her at a bar and just to talk about whatever i don't know what it was maybe i don't know if there was like a date or something but god somehow coerced him into meeting meeting her at a bar and she brought a gun with her uh, a Saturday night special, a small gun. And she had planned to kill this guy on the spot. She was so angry because uh, she fully believed this guy killed her brother. So she shows up and they, you know, they start talking about whatever, get a drink. And uh, she literally puts her hand on the gun and about to kill the guy. She goes, you know what? I know that you're the guy that, that, that killed my brother and caused all this. And uh, something came over her and she couldn't kill him. You know, just couldn't do it. You know, it's like a religious thing or something came over her and she just couldn't follow through with the act of killing the guy. But she wound up just saying, I know what you did. And I know that that you're you're the you're the reason that my brother's dead. And the guy basically just shrugged it off, never really admitted to it or denied it either either or. But she just winds up, you know, leaving the bar that day without killing him, put the gun back in her purse. And I thought that was a great story. And then I said, did she ever tell you the name of this guy? And um and, she, and the first thing she said to me, she said, well, the first thing I remembered about him was she said he was a preacher. And I was like, whoa, you know, because this is tying into the other guy. Right. So I'm thinking, bing, 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 bing. You know, this is this is really adding up. You know, I, mean, I still can't explain Gary's shoes, but here we got double hits on preacher now. Right. 
it's got to be the same guy. I mean, how many uh, uh, killers turn into preachers? There can't be too many. <laughs> and I'm like, it's got to be it. And so I just, uh, just as a, a housekeeping matter, I knew the name of, of, of oh, let's just call him Preacher One. So I said, well, did she ever give you the name? She goes, yeah, it's, and she said the name. And I'm like, it's not the name I expected to hear. It wasn't my preacher. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> it's like, I felt like I was back at square one, but like, what are the odds? You know, this guy's also later became, become some preacher in the area. And I'm like, this is insane. So I ask, I go back to uh, Gary Mathias's sister who doesn't really know Jack Madruga's niece or nephew at all. And, uh, she and then she and I said, have you ever heard of this name? You know, obviously she knows the other name who who they said threw Gary over the dam. She knows that guy well. We'll put it that way. And I said, but you've ever had heard this particular name? She said, yeah, I, I vaguely do. Yeah, you know, I remember. I do know who that is. You know, and he hang around. He hung around that same group of guys. And she didn't think of this other one as bad. This preacher too, we'll call him. But but you know, running in the same group of men at the time. And I said, was was he friends with preacher one? She said. He hung around him. I said he wasn't bad like him, but, you know, people hung around Preacher One out of fear. Remember, she said people just were so afraid of him. You just did what he said. So there is still a connection between Preacher One and Preacher Two. But maybe uh, Jack Madruga's sister got her wires crossed and with either the name or she was protecting her niece when she told the story. I don't know. But it is true that she did run this guy down and was going to kill him. And uh, he does have this crazy connection. And, it's, and that part is in the book for sure that I try to make sense of the insanity of these theories. But uh, that's another theory. Well, you Drew, know, preacher too. Drew, it's been awesome having you on here. This is, I got way more than I bargained for because I, I thought we were going to cover really, you know, the, the story just in, in a nutshell. And I've never heard somebody break down a story so so detailed is what you did that so that's 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 phenomenal i'm i'm thrilled to death that you was able to give me so many details on that story yeah man it's a crazy one so why don't you take a second tell everybody how they can find all of your books if, if you can't tell the man knows what he's talking about so it's his books i'm sure are full of energy just like he is uh and and hopefully we've talked about it but we'll see what happens when the time comes Hopefully Drew shows up down there at the live event that we're doing in Galveston. Cause like I said, that's how we met was talking about that. And if uh, the stars align, maybe we can get him down there. Absolutely. That sounds great. Uh, you can find my stuff on my website. It's uh, drewbeasonbooks.com. And I also have a YouTube channel and that's under my name, just Drew Beeson, or you can also search under sighting uh, in on the Zodiac killer. It'll pull, it'll pull up a lot of my, uh, my YouTube channel that way. Awesome. Brother, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a blast and I can talk to you all night. Appreciate it, man. It was a lot of fun. Tracy, how fun was he to have on? Oh, he was a blast. You can tell he really loves what he does. He does. And but see, here's the thing, and, and and I'm being as honest as I can about this. I can sit here and study everything about this week for the show. Mm-hmm. And I can have it pretty much down, but I'll still struggle with names. All right. You know, or exact dates, but I can tell you the gist of the story. And this is something that I have just studied. Mm-hmm. Next week, when I'm on to another story, I'm, I'd am i be hard-pressed to tell you anything about last week's story <laughs> or two weeks or three weeks before. Now, he's written a couple, you know, three or four different books 
on different subjects, but yet look how detailed he was. Yeah, he was. And I can almost guarantee you he didn't even have notes in. I can just tell by how how he flowed. He probably didn't have any notes in front of him. He just knows that stuff so far. And you're doing all these different names and the name of the street and the na- I mean it's just amazing to me. Well, that's great, man. It's what a good mind's for, you know. So good for him. All right, guys. Thank you so much. Remember, if you want to buy tickets to any of the events. HillbillyHorrorStories.com. You can also buy merchandise. You can buy my book. I will personalize it and send it out to you. Also remember, Hillbilly Dead Time Stories. There's a link there to it. Please go and subscribe. We're still about 100 subscribers short of where we need to be. And uh, we're going to try to give away a gift set here as soon as we hit that 1,000 mark. Yeah. So go ahead and, and sign up and send us a message and just tell us that you signed up and subscribed and we'll be good to go yeah thank you for all those that have already done that we really appreciate that all right guys thank you so much we love you and we'll talk to you later have a blessed week